0: Hi, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast. Great of you to be in and join us for Wednesday, February the 16th. Couple interesting chats on the COVID front, so we'll get there with Dr. Gene Noble from all the way out in San Francisco and Sabina Vora Miller, pharmacologist, our weekly Wednesday visit with her. Uh, I wanted to Weigh in on Doug Ford's comments. A lot of people did. Andrea Horvath had a reaction. Stephen Del Duca had a reaction. And uh, if you didn't know or weren't aware, um, the Ontario race for Premier and uh, Queen's Park is already well underway uh, about four months into, uh, away from rather, the uh, provincial election in June of 2022. All that and much, much more coming up on Toronto Today. Great to have you in. It starts now. So a lot to get to this morning. I want to get to the uh, resignation of the Ottawa police chief. I want to get to uh, what Justin Trudeau said in a scrum yesterday. Uh, But Doug Ford weighed in. um, He was at an announcement. There's going to be more and more announcements. uh, We know this heading into um, election season. We're not there yet because the election's a good uh, three and a half, three and three quarter months away. But the premier of the province got real with us yesterday, and uh, a lot of people are like, all right, bring it on. LG, let's do this. That's not short for let's do this, but let's go. Okay, let's let's open things up a little bit. To me, um, on March 1st, I wouldn't drop everything that the premier is dropping, and I'll explain that in a second, but I'm going to play the audio, see how it landed. Opposition parties, including a bit of a surprising one, um, from, I think, the Liberals and Stephen Del Duca. A bit of a surprising reaction and uh, and a bit of a reaction that I think is going to offset some voters um, from Andrea Horvath. Okay, so I'm not sure any of the leaders really uh, had the best 24 hours yesterday, but people are talking honestly and openly, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people want that uh, from the three main choices in Ontario's next election. Here's Doug Ford. It's a longer clip, but I think there's two different things happening in this particular um, you know rant, if you will, and I want to point both of them out. Here he is yesterday.
1: You know you, you can go to you can go to Costco, you can go to Walmart, you can go shopping. you know you don't know if the person has a shot beside you or not, but we also know that it doesn't matter if you have one shot or 10 shots, you can catch COVID. See, the Prime Minister has triple shots, and I, I know hundreds of people with three shots that caught COVID. We just have to be careful. We've got to always make sure we wash our hands and, and move forward. But we got to learn to live with this and get on with our lives. I bet if I asked every single person in this room, do you want these damn masks or do you want them off? They want them off. They want to get back to normal. They want to be able to go for dinner with their families. And there's every single person, including myself, knows people that are unvaccinated. You know, sure, there's there's the rebel rousers, and then there's just hardworking people that just don't believe in it. And and that's their choice. This is about, again, a democracy and freedoms and liberties. And I, I hate, as a government, telling anyone what to do. We just got to get moving forward and, and get out of this and protect the jobs. You know, we're, I think a lot of people call them, probably yourself too, everyone's done with us. Like, we are done with it. Let's let's start moving on and cautiously. And you know, we, we we've followed the rules, all of us, like ninety percent of us, for for over two years. The world's done with it, so let's just move forward.
0: Okay, I got a couple thoughts on what he said. I do want to hear from you on text, and maybe I can get a couple texts in. I'm sure Shiba Siddiqui will have thoughts. Uh, she'll join us in about 10 minutes' time leading into the 6.30 news. But I got a couple thoughts on it that let, that let me get out of the way. And I thought the audio was really interesting. Okay, it it, it makes my job easy. Okay, we can always find stuff to do. We're never going to run out of interesting things we think is good for you, the listener, in three and a half hours. Um, I, I can only speak for, for our show. But we have no problem filling in all the blocks if anything we leave too much stuff on the table but Doug Ford made it easy yesterday play that clip have people react cuz I sure reacted he's right in appealing to some people that say here's my individual level of risk and I'm ready to go I'm vaccinated I'm boosted I am ready let me get back to normal and um he is speaking that there's an element of me that he speaks to with that okay Very quick to get vaccinated. Very quick to get uh, a first and second shot for my two sons. We're fully vaccinated family. We're ready to do stuff. If you said to me, if you said it, um, you can go on a cruise next December um, free of charge. uh, Free stuff's great. We'd go. I can't think of anything I'd hesitate to do. I want to go to Europe in uh, late summer, potentially, potentially, uh, in August. Um, I want to, I'd love to take our kids before the one goes away to university on a, on a, on a proper trip that we've been planning um, since way back in late 2019. And we haven't done it yet. So you have a finite window of time. Your kids have a finite window of time. So his statement appeals to me there, and maybe it appeals to you. Again, text message at 289-975-1640. 289-975-1640. Um, I think he loses some of the room clearly there with not acknowledging what's still present and in our midst. We're going to a better place. Absolutely we are. Um You've got to be really cautious with saying you're done with it. There's two phrases I really don't like um, uh, that that people are saying right now. One is, well, I'm done with it, okay, even even without providing proper context. But the other equal phrase that I'd push back on is, hey, you might be done with COVID, but COVID's not done with you. Yeah, fine, but it also isn't May of 2020. And I don't have to live with that level of fear and concern and panic and worry in my system. It's not healthy and it's not practical, okay? So if if we're going to play the card that all health matters and mental health is also health, I don't have to put much more than my own household and my immediate circumstances first. And you're allowed to advocate for your own person. Now, OK, so there's two things there. I, I, it's sort of glib to say I'm done with it. And I criticize glibness. I sure did with the prime minister a few weeks ago, a small fringe minority. I can't I got to play. I've got to play both sides of it and say, I don't think you can be sort of like, hey, everybody's done with it. Healthcare workers aren't done with it. Teachers aren't those schools are going well. I've got, you know, I've got empathy for teachers who um, who stress about it um, on a daily basis. Less are, as we've gone along in the last month. That much is true. But, um, oh, by the way, he loses me completely on the, uh, well, just, you know, wash your hands part. That's about the 15th most important thing you can do. <laughs> it really is. Nobody's washing their hands like they were in April of 2020. No one is. No one should be. To be perfectly honest, it's not nothing, but um, it's not very significant uh, in the long in the long game Um, where he also will lose people is the idea of saying um, there's still really good people out there that it's their choice not to get vaccinated. And they just don't believe in it. He's right. But that's not exactly an urging right there. And the accusations for the Ford government that he's. He's sort of pandering to that group and he needs that 9%. There aren't going to be a lot of serviceable um, CPC options uh, in, in uh, PPC options, excuse me, in Ontario. Okay. And no one's going to vote for Derek Sloan's party. No one is. Okay. So um, we want to talk uh fringe with a capital F. You got it right there. There's three parties and there's a green option, but um, this provided an opportunity for Andrea Horvath to step in yesterday. Here's her statement on Twitter. It's shameful to hear Ford ignore science to repeat anti-vaxxer talking points. I can't believe I have to say this two years into COVID, but Doug, we all want Ontario open safely to prevent further lockdowns. Vaccinations are essential to protect our health and economy. She's right about that last sentence. She's wrong about pushing further lockdowns. There is no scenario. And I said this January 3rd, 4th, 5th and beyond. You know that I did um, to the point maybe where you were tired of me saying it. That's okay. Okay But um, th- there's no justification for lockdowns. The reason someone might not vote for the NDP it, beyond other reasons is and, and I'm again, I think there's plenty of reasons not to vote for any of the parties right now. This is the province we're in. But the reason not to vote for the NDP is to think, uh, we've got a right-leaning government that's locked us down pretty harshly, the NDP will do us a, a, a number worse. They won't get masks off our kids when it's deemed time to do so by the conservative government that will be criticized. They say they want open or so they say they want safe schools, but they never just say schools should be open. Okay, you can point to a lot, of, uh, a lot of scenarios where the conservatives have let us down public education-wise. Of course you can, but schools shouldn't have closed in January. And imagine if the NDP and liberals had pointed out why. Imagine if they had faith in the science that hospitalizations and ICUs aren't going to go up, they're going to go down. So you can't You can't have it both ways. You can't say panic in the streets. You can't yell fire in the crowded movie theater over and over and over again. And they sure did that when schools reopened and then nothing happened. If anything, things got better. Proving that schools don't drive. Of course, they're a factor in the community for spread. But when our communities are clearing out and getting better because Omicron swept through all of us for about six, seven weeks when we're all making, uh, shaving down Christmas plans and searching for tests, all of that happened. And I don't believe that, you know, it's an anti-vaxxer talking point to say, I want the the option to go to a a Leafs game because I'm fully vaccinated and have a a third shot. I don't think it's a anti-vaxxer talking point to say, I want my kids in a university classroom next year, or I want to be able to travel freely across my province, or I want to go to Massey Hall and see a concert. Those aren't anti-vaxxer talking points. So it's important to clarify that uh, that everybody Doug Ford was trying to appeal today to is not necessarily an anti-vaxxer. I think it's really interesting to see where that indeed goes. Let me play you this uh, from Justin Trudeau yesterday. Of course, it's the first day of uh, these emergency measures being put into place. He got stopped in a scrum coming out of the House of Commons and was asked about the financial implications of dinging not just the protesters themselves, but anyone who donated money to these protests. Here's what he said.
1: Financial penalties are underway for folks who are out there
0: under the Emergencies Act—is this a step too far? Is it too harsh? Uh, this is something that
2: is important for Canadians to know that there will be consequences for people who are breaking the law and people who are supporting those who are breaking the law. Uh, the Emergencies Act is something that is uh, proportional and responsible to move forward with to indicate that these blockades uh, should be done and people should go home.
0: Okay. Now, a protester yesterday uh, denoted, and he took video of it, that his account has been frozen. He tried to pay for something that was like $17, looks like at a grocery store in Ottawa. This is what ended up happening, and he has a message for the Prime Minister at the end of his decline. We've all been there, especially in school, uh, this decline transaction.
3: So that is the government, our Prime Minister, declaring his War Measures Act, the Desperate Measures Act of freezing my account and many others curious, does that scare you or does that empower you? Like you tell for me, it definitely doesn't scare me. We have many ways to go around this. There are a lot of resources.
0: Okay, so yeah, there's a lot of ways around this is uh, is a bit of an ominous statement. Some people are saying, okay, come on, Greg, that's probably faked. He just wants to show that the prime minister is being heavy-handed with authoritarian measures, and we can have that discussion. But then again, why wouldn't you show that the uh, prime minister's measures are having zero effect on you? Hey sir my debit card's still working why not that uh she's associate professor of emergency medicine director of COVID response so see she's seeing these patients she's seeing who's coming into hospitals and she's seeing who's into icu beds uh in one of america's biggest cities in san francisco dr Gene noble um so i'm in your state on the weekend i see how political it is i see so much of education is political right now with a lot of people pointing at the governor uh people are at the Super Bowl with no masks, people are then putting their kids in masks the very next morning, even to play outside. Um, it, it's a lot more political than it seems science-based, Dr. Noble.
4: That's right. This really gets away from the science and public health considerations uh, in a big way. Is we know, kids are at less risk for serious outcomes from COVID, even the unvaccinated. So your unvaccinated five-year-old has a less chance of ending up hospitalized from COVID than your vaccinated 50-year-old. Kids in California are masked six to eight hours a day, five days a week, far more than most of our adults in California were ever masked. And they have the most to lose by perpetual masking. We have in a million English language learners in our K through 12 schools, public schools in California. We have over a hundred thousand kids with some form of speech or language delay. Having them wear masks really decreases the quality and the impact of their education. And yet we have decided here in California that it is time to let adults go without masks, but not accord that same right to, to our kids.
0: I had to show it once to go in a restaurant on uh, on Saturday night, and and I understood that. And uh, and and I think that's that's still the right way to go about things. I think we're going to have some real questions as we move forward in the next several months. And and maybe we have even with Omicron and and a lot of the acquired immunity, given how how quickly Omicron has spread. Um, But we're going to have a lot of important conversations about, you know, where a mandate is useful, um, where it isn't. That said. Yeah, it's become it It seems very politically entrenched. It seems almost as politically entrenched as, you know, almost questioning the, the vaccine back way back in the in the late days of the Trump presidency. And I, I never thought it would go that way with masks. They made sense when we knew less about the virus. They certainly made sense when when none of us were vaccinated, didn't they?
4: Yeah, that's you hit the nail on the head there. So back in 2020, I was making YouTube videos on how to make a mask out of a kitchen towel. I was as pro-mask as you get. Mm -hmm. And then we had vaccines, and our vaccines have been incredibly effective at preventing serious illness and death. And over this two-year period, we did not have a single randomized controlled trial, the highest quality data that we demand in, in healthcare that demonstrated that kids have reduced transmission of COVID in the school setting from masking. The data just isn't there. And when we're in this post-vaccine era, to to continue to rely on masks as a key intervention is not following the data. And it has been really politicized. Here in California, our Governor Newsom mentioned that he is in close negotiations with our teachers unions to try to get them to come to the table as to when they will accept kids going to school without masks. And that's really that really sums it up. We are not keeping our kids masked for individual health benefit. We are keeping them masked until labor negotiations get to a point where our teachers unions say, it's okay to let the kids come to school without masks.
0: Dr. Gene Nobles, our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. I also feel like if you're doing something uh, with kids, you really need to, uh, you know, quote, unquote, um, show the work. And you have to you have to show the data that something is, is working and necessary or you shouldn't do it. It, it shouldn't be. Um, the, this is a little bit like a criminal trial. The onus is on the prosecution to prove a crime was committed In the last 24 months, not the other way around. To for the defense, or rather, the uh, for the defense to prove a crime wasn't. It's up to the prosecution. The one thing I look at is, I think, I think they hate getting painted as if they say, "Well, I want you know to get masks off my kids by April or May, or or I sure don't want to, you know a, 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 a two times vaccinated plus recovering from COVID university student wearing a mask in a lecture hall next year." They say, "I hate getting painted as." Well, I'm an anti-vaxxer because they couldn't be more pro-vaccine. They wore masks before there were vaccines and they they believe in the vaccines. The other the other factor is I think we've had I know we've had doctors because I pointed out the quotes that have almost linked masks with the vaccines as saying, well, they're equally important. And my goodness, like that's, I almost think that's dangerous. Um, and, and I've said so. Um, you know, I, I get nervous when I talk about it sometimes, but it's been dangerous to point that out, especially pre-Omicron, to suggest, to, to give somebody the idea that, well, the ma- you know, if you've got the mask, maybe you don't need the vaccine. No way. that That's not what we should be pushing out there.
4: Yeah, I think that was a terrible mistake by our CDC here in the US and our public health officials in general. When we decided that vaccinated individuals still needed to wear masks back in July of last year, I think we undercut the confidence that our population had in the most effective measure of of reducing serious outcomes from, from COVID. And that is vaccine far and away. We are still debating whether masks work at all. No one should be debating how incredibly effective these vaccines are. And yet when officials from the CDC and elsewhere nearly equate these two in people's minds, the vaccine hesitant can easily come away with the message with, I'm not going to get so I'm just going to wear my mask and I'll be, you know, I'll be equally protected, which is completely 100% False, and that's and that's where we've landed here in February of 2022.
0: Yeah, I almost feel if any if any concept is anti-vaccine, it's having three vaccinations and somehow thinking you need more protection. Now, let me say that my mom is 76. She's had three vaccinations. She smoked for 40 years. She says, "Greg, I'm going to wear, I'm going to wear a mask places. I, I'm going to wear a mask in high traffic areas." And I want her to because you know choice matters and her confidence level matters and if it's going to help her go to more places and and see more people once she arrives at that destination i'm all for it and i've told my kids i said if we get into a scenario where some kids in class are wearing masks and and you're not um you don't say a word you support those kids and their choices because we don't know their circumstance we don't know the home circumstance if i had an elderly Parent living here at home, um, I'd approach things differently than, but we're just, we're going to have to get there or we're just going to be spinning our wheels. We're going to have to have to give other people that benefit of the doubt, but that has to be returned, doesn't it?
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. And what you're alluding to is taking a nuanced approach to this in, this in this post-vaccination era. So it is entirely rational for someone who is at higher risk to decide that they are going to wear a mask and maybe upgrade their mask, maybe even try to get a fit-tested N95 mask when they're in a really high risk environment and they have the most to lose when they're the most vulnerable, that makes sense. What doesn't make sense are these blanket mandates where we're saying millions of young, healthy people potentially vaccinated young elderly people mm-hmm. still need to wear masks for some reason. And that is really getting away from the data, really getting away from the science. It's, we are at a point now where people need to do their own individual risk assessment, and they can do that in consultation with their family physician and decide what's right for them, but not to take this as a population level mandate that no longer makes sense.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think those family physicians and pediatricians, their advice now uh, is really vital. Dr. Jean Nobles joining us, by the way, uh, all the way from California. She's the director of COVID response for UCSF Emergency Department. There, um, the idea of vaccines not being ready um, for under fives. What do you hear from parents? Again, confidence matters, and and how a parent you know walks forward into a, a sort of a, a post-COVID universe matters. I, I get it. If, if there'd been a delay for for my teen boys by a month or two where I was still waiting on pins and needles to get them vaccinated, I um, understand it. What are you hearing from most parents who have uh, toddlers and, and, and kids uh, who are under five who aren't eligible right now?
4: well like so many areas of any covid discussion there's a lot of polarization so there are some parents who are really frightened very anxious just can't wait until it looks like april comes around so that their 6 month to 4 year old child can can get vaccinated and then there are others who are who are hesitant about the safety of the vaccine although we have billions of people who have been you know who have taken this vaccine at least in mm-hmm. adults at this point uh, and then those who are just not excited about having a vaccine when they don't think their kid is particularly at risk. And the, the data there that people should really focus on is that the unvaccinated toddler has a flu-like level risk from COVID. So if you were okay as a parent sending your two-year-old to daycare or your four-year-old to preschool in the flu season in you know, 2019 without a mask, you can be okay and, you know, sleep at night until your child gets vaccinated against COVID in in April or later. That is a similar level risk. And, you know, and to those who are vaccine hesitant, well, you know, getting a vaccine is generally a really benign thing to do for, for kids, at least a single dose for young kids, and it will protect a small number of them from becoming seriously ill from COVID. It is not dissimilar to other vaccines that we have mandated in the past. So parents should neither be staying up at night, worried about the health of their two-year-old until they can get them vaxxed, nor be overly concerned that that vaccine is going to be somehow harmful for their child. The truth is right there in the middle.
0: I know before I let you go, um, I let you know that there's uh, a, a booster eligibility now for 12 to 17 here in our province of Ontario. And uh, and I was really pushing back. There were some politicians that wanted you know, the vaccine to be mandated for schools for five to 11 once it opened. I, I didn't feel good about that. I felt you know weird talking about it early on. and then I thought, no, it's okay. there, there are people and experts that end up agreeing with that, that thats that's a bridge too far too soon. Give parents the choice. They may absolutely run out and get their six-year- old vaccinated, but that ends up being up to them. and then they don't lose edu- they don't lose out on education. We've, we mandated it for sports for 12 to 17. and I was okay with that in the fall. But I don't, like I said, I don't know where we go with some of these mandates now. If if I said the booster is is something that we should probably you know talk about with our own physicians and not have it be mandated, I I I wonder how that lands. Free. I I I don't. I just don't think that was the conversation 12 months ago. Was our kids would be getting three vaccines plus maybe they've had they've had COVID and recovered um, within an 11 month 12 month span. That was that was not on the table.
4: Right. I think uh, mandating boosters, especially for young, healthy males or our, our adolescent boys and young men, is really the wrong way to go. We are still in the process of collecting data on myocarditis uh, induced from COVID vaccines in this age group, and there are studies that suggest that the rate of myocarditis induced from the COVID mRNA vaccine in young boys is as high as 1 in 5,000. So we need time. We need more data before we get out there and, and mandate anything like a third dose for, for young, healthy kids who are not likely to do poorly from COVID, even without the primary vaccine vaccine. Series. We have to really abide by that medical principle of first, do no harm. There is not a rush, certainly, to boost our children. And mandating that, I think, would really be a step in the wrong direction. Has your take
0: evolved from that from August, September? Because like I said, early days and and in Delta, parents may not have signed their kid up to play ice hockey or basketball or indoor soccer um, early on, just just to get one shot. Was that maybe, where did you land last July or August with it? Dr. Noble?
4: Yeah, I was much more in favor of vaccine mandates last fall as a really practical approach to normalizing our kids' lives at school. And I have to say that I have changed my viewpoint there because I don't think that the outcome for kids has really panned out. In other words, mm-hmm. getting getting kids the first two doses and being fully covered with, with a COVID vaccine, I anticipated wrongly that that would mean kids would not have to mask, they would not distance, they would have normal lives in their schools. And that was not the case. Kids got vaccinated, they walked up to the plate, they got their shots, and very little has changed. The schools opened, which of course that's great, but that's a pretty low bar to set uh, and they remain masked. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of fear still in our schools. There's kindergartners who get yelled at for talking outside during lunchtime. Um, so they, they didn't get the benefits that I was expecting. Uh, and I think just from a purely individual health standpoint, uh, those mandates are no longer the way to go, especially because the vaccine now with Omicron doesn't do a fabulous job of preventing transmission. It still maintains its excellent efficacy against serious outcomes. But it doesn't do as much against transmission. And so the argument there, even from a public health perspective, no longer really holds for vaccinating their, your kids so they don't spread it at school just doesn't, it's not as strong with Omicron as it was with prior variants.
0: Yeah, we hope that lack of spread w- would hold, um, didn't we, when, once we discovered w- what Omicron was. And uh and it's uh, it didn't. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for making the time uh, for our audience. It's refreshing your your honesty, your accountability, um, and, and I think some positivity with where we're going in the next six months. Um, we've all got to keep pushing um, and, and really advocating. And I, I appreciate you making the time for our audience.
4: Of course. Thanks. So, thanks again for having me.
0: It was Dr. Jean Noble. I love that because she doesn't live here, doesn't live in Canada, doesn't live in Ontario. Um, and, and there's still some Ontario doctors that are really valuable, but there's nothing, you know, nothing bought and paid for. There's no dog in the fight politically. Just on, just an honest person who's who knows her stuff. Um, our next guest is a professor at the Rodman School of Management. Um, he, uh, he, we've been trying to get him on the show for a while, and now we have. Uh, Ambarish Chandra is our guest. It's great to have you on, uh, Professor Chandra. I appreciate the time, and, and you, re, you, re, you and I have reached out to each other before, so thanks for accommodating our audience here.
2: Hi, Greg. Sure. Yeah, happy to be on the show.
0: When I, when I lay all that out, and I know you probably want to weigh in on some of the travel requirements. Um, I don't know why it didn't occur to me to mention yesterday. Yeah, that's as crowded elbow to elbow for like close to an hour as I've felt. And never mind getting screened as well at the end for a random uh, rapid test. And then eventually the lineup is so long, they say they just give me a kit and go, just take this at home. Like there's so <laughs> much we're doing that is not based on any form of data or science. And it's costing us tons of money as well.
2: Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, a lot of, um, you know, yesterday they announced these changes. I was looking forward to them. But a lot of the changes are, I mean, okay, a couple of them are welcome. I mean, it sounds like kids don't have to quarantine 14 days after they come back to Canada. But, you know, the option to take an antigen test it isn't really that great an option. You still have to be, do a pre-departure test and then potentially a test on arrival. And you've got all of these other steps, proof of vaccination, Arrive app. And as you said, all these, you know, crowds in the hall, and I think a lot of these measures just seem at the stage excessive and, you know, frankly, performative.
0: What's a, what's a best-case scenario where we get to with, say, air travel or borders and whatnot? We had a small window. We had a really small window in the fall. And, and you can't pin this on the federal government or any uh, Canadian government. This was the U.S. not opening to us for much of September until early October. But then we only really had that sort of, you know relative freedom if you will for about 4 or 5 weeks uh, for people to finally get across not worry about an expensive test on the way back.
2: Yeah, I think that's right and also the US had this really absurd situation where, you know, Canadians could fly across the border but not drive across it and you know that was driven by, you know, I think internal politics in the US as well. But mm-hmm. that's that's right. It's too bad that we couldn't really get back to a sense of normal in the fall before, you know, the Omicron wave again which, you know, I mean at some level you can understand why You know, the government felt compelled to do a whole bunch of things over the last couple of months. But I've been arguing for a while that, you know, in Canada we were too slow to relax measures last year. uh, Certainly last summer, but arguably even last spring. You know, once vaccines came online, um, once a lot of people were vaccinated and were traveling, you know, fairly safely, we still had a lot of performative measures. We were still quarantining vaccinated people for up to two weeks. So I feel like, you know, we it's it's not just it's true that some of these measures were out of our control, but a lot of them were. Embarrassed, Chandra
0: well. is a uh, economics professor at the University of Toronto. Um, when it comes to what you saw last week at the Ambassador Bridge, a couple other bridges, um, there's things we want to look away from, and but most of it's you know terrible stuff. W- what I am looking away from, I mean, human loss of life, kids dying, whatnot. Of course, that that makes us all remarkably uncomfortable. When I see, it's a different, it's a different look away. The dollar amount that it was costing Canada last week for. That bridge being closed. When I see the dollar amount that uh, security in, in around the perimeter of Ottawa for law enforcement costs, I think none of this is free. It, it's a huge bill to pay, and not a lot of not a lot of easy ways to pay it for our country, is there?
2: No, that's right. I mean, I think the the ambassador bridge disruption was just massive. I mean, you know, literally hundreds of millions of dollars being held up every day. But yeah, there's absolutely a, a security bill of, in Ottawa. You know, a, a large cost of clearing everything in Windsor, you know, added on to the massive bills we've been racking up for now two years.
0: When you looked at the demonstration last week, how did it land for you? Did you sort of see, I, I'm talking about the, the bridges specifically, did you look and think this is something that the, the federal government, along with local law enforcement officials, won't hesitate to do? It's not that what's happening in Ottawa is not important to Ottawa residents. Of course it is. But this is something that they're going to they're gonna move a little bit faster. They're going to expedite this process to break this up just because of the ripple effect across our whole country.
2: Absolutely. I think that was, I mean, the Ambassador Bridge was just crucial to move fast on um, because, look, I mean, I'm not saying Ottawa doesn't need to be resolved, you know, and it's, I assume the government is, is working on it. I mean, we're seeing everything they're doing. But an ambassador, what, it's not just about trade. It's about, you know, people's. a lot of people's jobs are on the line. A lot of shift workers are just laid off or not asked to come in if, you know, the trucks aren't in on time. And so that's no fault of theirs to you know just have to pay their own direct economic cost for you know this this blockage that we just simply can't afford because so much of what we do in Canada relies on that one single bridge
0: well, you made a, a point a couple of days ago, um, and I'll, I'll read you back your tweet so the audience understands the context. You wrote, Ontario's 38% of Canada's population. We get about two-thirds of incoming trucks. We need the bridge. bridges because of water. Um, Quebec's 23% of Canada. They've got a land border, too, but nobody talks about it. It's not significant. They only get 11% of trucks. So you write, long-term plan, expand local crossing, reduce reliance on Ontario bridges. Um I see that. How easy is it to do, and and who has to step up and say, yeah, this the, this sort of eases the the pressure and tension on one specific bridge, or even two, if we count Sarnia Port Huron.
2: Yeah, it's, it's not easy at all. In fact, it's probably not feasible, frankly, at this stage. If we were starting from scratch, I would design that system, or if we had a twenty-year plan with cooperation from you know private companies and the U.S., then I would move towards that system, but. Yeah, frankly, we're in this situation because of path dependence. Ambassador Bridge started off being important, and so it sort of snowballed. It became more and more important, and we threw more and more resources at it, and now all these trucks use it, and it's vital. Um, but, but yes, in principle, it's kind of crazy. We're over-reliant on Ontario's bridges, you know, two or three bridges in particular, massively over-reliant, and there's an entire, you know, hundreds of miles long border where we don't even have to cross bridges. You know, we have a land border with the U.S. for, for so much of the country, including in Quebec. Ideally, we'd use that better.
0: Ambairish Chandra is a economics professor at University of Toronto. We don't use the the New York ones as often for goods. Why Why is it the Ambassador Bridge is such a uh, incredibly popular spot that deals more with with the Midwest uh, steel, auto parts, uh, whether it's the Peace Bridge or or Lewiston. I mean, we think about it, and we we need to get to New York that way, or you know, go to a Bills or Sabers game or whatever. Obviously, people listening in Hamilton, it's closer for them to cross, maybe to get to that Buffalo Airport, but we don't use it as much for goods services, not even close.
2: That's that's right. We don't. It's, it's something like 10 or 12% of, of traffic as opposed to 25% for ambassador. It's plant dependence. So, you know, uh, Detroit Windsor was important for the auto industry, you know, 60, 70, 80 years ago. So we, you know, we built it up more. We gave it resources. We built, you know, highway on ramps and warehouses and docks and put staff in place. And so as a result, more and more trucks use Ambassador, even trucks that don't have to necessarily go that aren't connected to the auto sector. They're just using ambassador because it's now giant. It sort of exerts its own gravitational pull.
0: Let me switch gears and talk about universities. Because I know you've been, uh, again, I, I think you've championed the cause of, of getting back to in-person learning. You know your um, college experience. I know mine. And, uh, and we can't fathom the idea of our parents helping us get there, leading us along the way. Uh, people have saved their whole lives to send, maybe it's the first kid in their family to ever go to university. And this has not been... Um, the experience that they that they were and are paying for. So you saw this yesterday just like I did from the Berkeley Faculty Association out at, uh, at Cal, the Golden Bears, et cetera, et cetera. Here's what they tweet. The campus has not been able to provide any evidence that our crowded classrooms that frequently have poor levels of ventilation and filtration are not sites of transmission, even when students and instructors are masked, as in like, we don't think we're in a safe learning environment, and it was described by many, um, and we follow some of the same people as astonishing. Um, what was your reaction to, to, to this, based on very little in terms of real data? This is just, this sounds like emotions and not data. You know, absolutely. I mean, the claim is staggering.
2: It's saying we have no evidence that transmission happened. So we're basically going to assume that transmission did, you know, in fact happen. So, I mean, that's just I don't see how you can gather the evidence to prove this at this stage, especially with all the measures in place. I And it's not just, you know, Berkeley. I think universities around North America have been taking this, and frankly, excessively cautious view to a, a population that's, you know, frankly, at very low risk.
0: Where do you land on on being back in the class? And you have seen in our province, and certainly in the GTA, uh, where most of our listeners are, schools opened four weeks ago, and uh, and I understood it. I, I mean, I, I think I think we can easily find ways to criticize the provincial government for not providing uh, proper PPE, not letting teachers wear better quality uh, and better grade masks, and uh, and we can go there absolutely. But the concept that all of a sudden our hospitals were going to fill up with uh, with you know educators, some. People shrugged their shoulders at and said, "I don't think that's going to happen." And it didn't happen last September during Delta, and it didn't even happen in September of 2020 when no one was vaccinated. So, uh, I mean, does this not does sort of the lay of the land not have an influence on the university communities and university professors who are who are who want to be you know the last holdouts and and still want to sort of teach from home?
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree. I you know let's be clear. I, I was sympathetic to university professors, especially my some of my colleagues are older, they're maybe immunocompromised. Mm-hmm. Pre-vaccine, sure, if you if you didn't feel comfortable teaching in, in person, I get it. Um, uh, but post-vaccine, I mean, it's, now it's been, you know, since, since the summer of 21, everyone's had availability, vaccine availability, access to boosters. Um, I mean, and we've got all these measures in place at university classrooms, like we do at schools. I mean, what are we waiting for at this stage? Nothing else is going to change. Uh, so yeah, I, at this stage, I'm I'm not sympathetic to to university faculty that still wanna teach online indefinitely.
0: I'd love for the politics to be taken out of things like this, but I know better, and, and you probably do too. That it's just there is so much influence. I even watched all the leaders react yesterday, and I, I saw Doug Ford speak, and I'm like, this is meant to appeal to a base. Andrea Horvath's reaction is meant to appeal to a base. Stephen Del Duca's reaction is meant to appeal to a base. And, and you're a person thinking, I just want to manage my own risk. I want, I want the vulnerable and and those that are at greater risk, as you note, know, older professors, to be in that safe environment. But I, I, I don't have time to be partisan about any of this and, and certainly university students don't either it's a finite amount of time that they get to go to college for
2: i think that's exactly right i mean university students if you're if you're in university for four years it's already been half that time that you've been online in, in many universities across north america and it's just it's not fair to these you know these young adults who for whom university is a special time. I mean, I see it. It's it's the time to make, you know, connections, to learn, to be, make friends. And to, you can't do that over a Zoom screen. I've, I've seen it in teaching. I've seen it in interaction. And we can have these young adults who are now fully vaccinated to continue to spend their lives or their university education behind a screen.
0: He's Ambarish Chandra, professor from the Rodman School of Management. I loved our chat. Uh, we covered a lot. It was great to have you on it. And we'll have to do it again. Thanks for making the time for our audience. Thanks, Greg. Um, let me give you some context before uh, I get into um, a lot of issues uh, with our next guest, who we always have on, uh, Sabina Vora Miller on Wednesdays. But Dr. Gene Noble was on from California. I ran this past a couple pediatricians yesterday, um, who look specifically at kids, and um, and we know there's family doctors, but some people specialize, obviously, in just looking at kids. And and the vaccine news that well, it's not ready yet for under five, um, hit some parents hard. Here's what Dr. Noble said earlier on the show.
4: So there are some parents who are really frightened, very anxious, just can't wait until it looks like April comes around so that their six month to four year old child can can get vaccinated. And then there are others who are who are hesitant about the safety of the vaccine, although we have billions of people who have been, you know, who have taken this vaccine, at least in adults at this point. Uh, And then those who are just not excited about having a vaccine when they don't think their kid is particularly at risk. And the the data there that people should really focus on is that the unvaccinated toddler has a flu-like level risk from COVID.
0: There's a lot there. Um, And uh, look, again... Parents are going to feel how they feel. Emotions a real thing. We have to listen to people. We have to understand. It's the same thing as going back into the classroom. It's the same thing as, uh, as how people feel going into an essential workplace. We all know what getting vaccinated did for our levels of confidence um, last spring. It's, but these are important conversations to have. Um, Sabina Vora Miller, pharmacologist, our guest. Um, it, it's tricky, right? Because last week you hear that news and everybody's heart sinks a little bit. We want parents to have options. We all do. Um, and you're a parent of, of, a, of a child child under five but we also want to be right so it's uh we're all we're all breathing a little deeply through this whole process
5: you know i this is it's such a tricky um situation and and like you said there's many facets to it but i do want to first you know comment on the the comparison to flu like or influenza first of Mm -hmm. all influenza is not um anything to sneeze at. It's a, it's, a, it's a troublesome virus, especially in children who are under the ages of five. They, it can cause a lot of very severe um, influenza-related complications in those who are under five, especially if they're not vaccinated. But I do want to just quickly talk about that in the last, you know, uh, just under two years of this pandemic, we have had 128 influenza-related pediatric deaths. Whereas in that same time period, we've had nearly 1,200 pediatric deaths. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And this is basically children who are under the ages of 18. So, I mean, to say that it's influenza-like is is, is inaccurate. So, I just want to, you know, I, I, that comparison, it just for, it, 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 it's, 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 it keeps you know having a new a new um, takes on a new life form every couple of months, but that 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 comparison is absolutely inaccurate. And I don't think. Well, we should w-
0: be let me. It. I gotcha. Would that be the case with with Omicron? We are seeing, and and this is what I hear from from nurses who work pediatric wards, um, is the fact that they say I, we're seeing a different COVID in. You know, January of 2022, then certainly we saw in August 2021 and certainly when nobody was vaccinated um, and we weren't seeing five to 11 year olds vaccinated in, say, the summer of 2020, we are seeing a slightly different COVID, a less severe COVID
5: yeah but at the same time, we have seen hospitalizations have risen remarkably in this in this uh, population, and I'm also hearing now reports of Miss C going through the roof, and I think we're going to see that in the next few weeks where we're going to have a lot more hospitalizations due to miss C happening. so i mean i'm not I'm not denying the fact that you know for 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 the most part, children who are under five have less severe illness. I am not, you know, debating that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then bringing it back to the the, the aspect of the vaccines, I mean, I think that parents have been given this false hope back and forth. This yo-yoing has been really hard on parents. And I can speak to that as a parent myself to um, an under five-year-old. Um, you know, the one week we have different news, the next week the news changes, but a vaccine needs to be effective and not just safe. And we know that it yeah. is safe, but it has to be effective. And in my, personally, I mean, I think even going before before the um, FDA basically said, let's postpone this meeting, I thought that the approval on based on two-dose data, data was really unlikely unless they had some preliminary data from the three-dose that was becoming available that we just weren't aware of. But I've never seen anything being approved based on data that was not available, right? Data that was about to come. And I think what this should tell parents is that we are following science, that we are doing due diligence. And this is important because vaccine hesitancy is a huge, huge concern, especially, um, you know, with parents of little children. I mean, we're seeing even the vaccine uptake in the 5 to 11. is really struggling. There are areas, even in Ontario, that is, you know, 40% single dose vaccinated in the 5 to 11. So we have to go through this cautiously and make sure we're dotting our I's uh, and we're crossing our T's.
0: Yeah, there's a lot there that you you brought up and and I think you're right. We've hit a wall, we've hit a wall with pediatric vaccines. And we and you and I talked in the summer, August, September, and we hit a wall with adult vaccines. What got us over a couple of the hurdles, if you will, was people going back to school and the idea of vaccine passports and mandates. Um, So you're right, it's been trickier to mandate things for five to 11. And I think there are parents that are going to be, you know, that are really on the fence, certainly about that. I I mentioned earlier, I think I mentioned it to you, but my kid had a few soccer teammates that twelve plus that got their vaccination when they realized they needed to play indoor soccer. And there's obviously parents that said, well, my kid wants to go to the movies or go to the gym, things Mm -hmm. that kids should do. And and kids and with a population at the smallest in the smallest risk level, not a no risk. Um, Here's something Dr. Ashish Jha says that I think relates exactly to what you're saying. That's a pretty unimpeachable uh, doctor right there. He wrote CFR for Omicron and you wrote this this morning. CFR for Omicron in the U.S. during surge was 0.4 percent. So about a quarter of it was for Delta. That really is good. But the Omicron surge caused so many infections that it killed about 50, 50,000 people just in the last three weeks. So kind of people that pinpointed uh, Sabina in uh, late November, early December and said, this might be less severe, but we're going to flood the healthcare system because of how this spreads. Those hmm. are those ended up being pretty accurate conditions and, and predictions.
5: Absolutely. And the other thing also where we don't realize is that, you know, we're seeing that Omicron is probably slight, slightly less severe because we already have vaccines, because people have previous yes. uh, immunity from infections as well. So I also wonder what, you know, the situation would be had we had Omicron, but without all of this immune protection that we've, you know, accumulated over the last, you know, year or so. Um, so there's, there's definitely that aspect to it, too. But, uh, you know, I think that with kids' vaccines, we have to go slow. We have to make sure we're doing the research, and that's the only way we can build trust. I mean, I talk about building trust mm-hmm. all the time with vaccines, and it's so important. Um, I think that if we make one misstep here, we're going to be paying you know, it, it, on on the trust front, we're going to be paying on that for you know years to come. Not just even with COVID vaccines, but it will spill over to other vaccines too.
0: Well, a hundred percent. And you and I are talking. You you brought it up. Uh, you know, natural slash acquired immunity, and that wasn't in public health. It's still not to me uh, in public health conversations as much as it should be. We all hoped that the fully vaccinated person wouldn't um you know spread it or shed the virus you once omicron came we realized oh no they don't they don't quite give that layer of protection uh, in terms of spread that we hope they would or that the initial vaccines did with alpha and and to some extent with delta but yeah, like it, you're right. It's it's, you know, say what you say, say say how it's changed, say how it's evolved. Admit when you maybe didn't get something right. This has been impossible. Nobody's been 100 percent. This has been especially the last five months, really impossible to predict which way we go and what opens, what closes and where the numbers go.
5: Yeah, and I think that's really why we're struggling at this point and, you know, trying to figure out what really should be the next steps. I mean, when you talk about, you know, previous infections, for instance, we know from the Ontario Science Table that nearly 4 million people in Ontario have been infected in recent months with Omicron, which means that they likely have some degree of protection, especially if they have two doses of vaccines and an infection. But where does that fit in, right, into the whole Mm -hmm. vaccine mandate that we have right now with just two doses, So, I mean, it makes things really tricky right now, um, to be honest. And and like you said, I think that we have to have humility to know, okay, well, this is what we've been doing so far. But perhaps now that the science has changed, maybe, you know, the disease has changed, things have changed. Let's pivot and do things that actually make sense. We have to be driven by science on this.
0: Savina Vora Miller is our guest on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. So um you, you and I both know uh Dr. Nathan Stahl, and he's been, you know, a, a great advocate, certainly um for our older people, certainly for people like my father-in-law in long-term care. And he made the point yesterday, and this 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 gets into that territory that you're speaking of, that um he writes, adding a third dose was something the Ontario Liberal Party and I supported. I spoke with Stephen Del Duca about that last time he was on the show. He writes, the scientific rationale changed on Feb four when Nasi recommended those infected with COVID-19 wait at least three months before getting their third dose. So he's kind of looking and saying, Uh, You know, changing the mandates or the passports, regardless of where we go with them to three doses um, is is kind of an ineffective strategy uh, right now. How how does that land for you? I know we look and say, my goodness, especially people over 60 should be getting their third doses and we should advocate for that. Um, I've got mine. So certainly people 20, 25 years older than me should get theirs. But it's it's as you note and he notes with acquired immunity. It's tricky to know where we go with with our with our mandates and passports from last fall.
5: Yeah. <clears throat> so the vaccine mandate situation, is, it is tricky. So first of all, I think we need to remember that mandates were supposed to be a short-term thing. I mean, we were talking mm. about last year in October, you know, or, or I can't remember, September, October, that Jan 17th was that magical date when we get rid of vaccine mandates. So we were talking about this for quite a while. Um, so it's not something that is new and it's not something that's because of some of these protests that are occurring. It was always meant to be a short-term thing. Um, and so we have to go back and understand why we do, do these mandates, right? There are three main reasons. You want to increase vaccine uptake, you want to reduce transmission, and you want to keep the unvaccinated. And I think we spoke about this last time, how the vaccine mandates right now are basically protecting the unvaccinated from high-risk situations. And so we're in a position right now where vaccine you know, uptake for two doses is not going any higher, um, we know that mm-hmm. perhaps the, you know, that, that two doses is not really helping at all with reducing transmission. We need a booster to actually help with that transmission. Um, so, where do we go from here? Plus, you also understand that there are people who've had two doses of vaccine as well as an infection, right? And mm-hmm. so, you have two options. Either you go back to the vaccine mandates and you say, all right, let's bump it up to three doses. Um, but then at the same time, there are certain populations that may not necessarily need a third dose right away. For instance, you know, um, those who are in, in the 12 to 17 age group who already got two doses, do they really need to rush out and get a booster dose? I don't know. The science is and, and,
0: and university that. students, too. You know, that's a big exactly. talking point, isn't it? For parents and college students as to yeah. two, two doses already, plus recovered from COVID, maybe Omicron, and they're getting asked or forced to get a third dose. Parents don't like that conversation.
5: That's exactly it. So where do we go now for, you know, for back to the on the vaccine mandates on this front when you have certain populations that may not necessarily right now need a third dose. Um, and plus, Nancy says, hold off on getting your third dose because you should have some protection for at least the next two to three months after an infection. So, I mean, you know, I've always felt that vaccine mandates should be, first of all, a last resort. And we should have mm-hmm. clearly outlined purpose to help the rationale and guide the duration for it, right? And so we're coming back to that exact mm-hmm. reason that I said I remember saying this last year we need to really make sure we understand what the purpose is so that we can actually guide where we're going with it so if we go back to vaccine requirements right now I think it makes sense in settings where there are vulnerable people involved so hospitals long term care homes shelters and you know I would even probably talk about schools in this situation I mean we we have vaccination against other pre- you know vaccine preventable diseases that are required to attend school Um, And these are diseases that that actually, in fact, have lower death rates, mortality rates than COVID does. So, I mean, I think it's something we should consider even for schools. But I think outside of that, I'm not sure how much sense it would actually make to bump it up to three doses. Um, You know, and and I think that Mm -hmm. the idea of actually phasing them out makes sense until we actually need to get people back. If there is another, for instance, a newer updated version of the vaccine, sure, you know, let's consider it once again at that point. But it has to be short and it has to have a
0: purpose. Yeah. I tell you, sometimes I want people like you and me to make the decisions and I'm like, sometimes, <laughs> I'm glad we don't. <laughs> it's, a lot of, it's a lot of scrutiny and a lot of, uh, lot of trying to be accountable. Uh, love our conversations. Thanks very much for this one.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: Toronto Today presents Chatterbox. Chatterbox. A neat quick look at the stories you're already talking about.
3: What? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Do you expect me to talk?
0: Or when this is all over, you'll certainly be talking about...
3: Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. That doesn't make sense.
0: Here we go. Hope you can handle
3: the curveballs. Just a bit outside. You just don't get it, do you?
0: All right, it's Chatterbox. How about that announcer? By the way, he's a regular. He's a regular Johnny Olson. That always felt like a good job to me. To, and being the announcer at The Price Is Right, you don't have to, to you know, you, people aren't going to hug you. You don't have to interact with the general public. Uh, we all work in radio, so we realize uh, that we want to we want to keep them uh, afar from us. That's not true. We've got two fantastic radio hosts on for Chatterbox uh, today. Alex Pearson first uh, will be on uh, at nine o'clock this morning. Uh, Six forty, Toronto host. Always nice to have you, especially early in the morning. I'm sure things aren't hectic around the house, so I appreciate you making the time.
6: <laughs> I know I'm like I'm like putting like putting fingers in a dike. I'm just like plugging every hole. <laughs>
0: and one, uh Bill Kelly, who hosts the aptly named Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I think you I, you have got the magic touch, or your producer does. You're getting all these exclusive interviews with uh, the premier Doug Ford, and what? we play them. And and yeah,
3: Bill, welcome you, on I my mean, show. I
6: can't uh, figure uh, that no, out.
3: You guys i don't know I, i've got my studio now I, i've got my don fardo and johnny also what you, you guys don't have that in
0: toronto <laughs> no no it doesn't hey, it doesn't don't it doesn't, more, it doesn't feel on. that way Gord, yeah. randy did uh, great with it and by the way uh, i should let people know you're prepping you're both prepping for great three hour extravaganzas today so we, oh, we recorded yeah. this on saturday so i think the i think the ottawa police chief is going to resign i don't know how <laughs> whether you know i don't have a crystal ball let's start there um you know, there's no more uh, Chief Slowey anymore, Alex. Mm, uh, was this yeah. at all a surprise? He sure didn't take accountability or responsibility. And we had one of these very political resignations saying, I'm just so proud of the work we've done. And I think we're, we're further ahead than I ever imagined. But I'm quitting. That doesn't make sense.
6: Well, who takes responsibility these days for anything uh, in, in
0: leadership positions? It, it, it's
6: not a surprise to me.
0: It's a surprise that it happened
6: as fast as it did. But I think once we heard that the OPP and RCMP were taking over with a, a coordinated, um, you know, whatever they're doing there, which still isn't much, um, I think, mm-hmm. you know, it was clear that his days, he was not going to survive this and nor should he. He's done a terrible, terrible job. I mean, we've seen in other jurisdictions like Alberta and Windsor that you can actually, and in Toronto, that you can police your way out of this and, and do the job because the laws are already on the books. Uh, he failed to do the job. And, and, and frankly, he's not the only one. There are several heads that should be rolling um over what has happened here because it's very clear that there was no plan there was no plan or case made for a worst case scenario they completely misread the tea leaves on this thing and and look where it's led us you know now we've got a prime minister who's brought in these emergency powers and again i think it goes too far i don't think the case has been made but what i think has crystallized over the last uh, 24 to 48 hours is that there's no plan still in Ottawa, 20 days into this thing, there's no central planning, there's no strategy, no one knows what someone's doing. You've got the mayor out striking up deals, you've got uh, the police chief uh, leaving town, and, and, and you've got the federal government that's saying, well, it's, it's their responsibility. This thing is a mess because of failed leadership on every level, so his head's not the only one that's rule.
0: Bill, this feels a little like The Fugitive when uh, the movie with Harrison Ford, when Tommy Lee Jones comes in and says, "Um, the podunk (laughs) sheriff. I'll be taking over your investigation. You clearly don't know what you're doing here. We're going to set up perimeters and checkpoints. And Alex is probably right. Chief Slowly probably maybe, just maybe his heart sank a little bit when he saw how organized Toronto was and how it took (laughs) this mass protest in Windsor took three or four days to clear out. And and his city is still chaos and disorder.
3: Have you noticed, though, just around eleven o'clock this morning, yesterday, I guess it was, when the the word leaked out that he was going to resign. Within minutes, we got all these stories now that I guess people have been suppressing about what was really going on. Which, by the way, Alex was right—nothing. Uh, but <laughs> just, I had no plan, and and, and like I told you on the show yesterday, this—they didn't just descend on these guys like, oh my God, where would these guys come from? They knew they were coming. They took five days to get there. They saw the they, media. they knew what was going to happen, and and apparently we're told now that slowly quote-unquote strategy, was to just let them sit there, and they'd get tired and go home after a while. Are you kidding? <laughs> uh, and, you know, when we saw what was going to happen in Toronto, and you guys saw this firsthand, mm-hmm. uh, within seconds of yeah, there's going to be a rally this weekend in Toronto, around Queen Park, uh, John Tory was there, the chief of police was there, the, you know, they, okay, we're going to block this off, we're going to channel them over here. They had a plan. This is the way it's going to go. And yeah, these people got there, and they made their, their noise, and then, yeah, for the most part, they went home, and everything was fine. Uh, I don't know what slowly was thinking, but... <laughs> This was like a swarm of locusts, you know, that was descending upon the city. And he just said, ah, nothing going on here. No problem. Keep on rocking. And now, we're also finding out the rank and file in the, and the department had no use for this guy either. So, you know, he's, uh, the other story I saw last night from one of my sources in Ottawa was one of the things he did say was, OK, everybody is carrying gasoline cans in there. They're going to get arrested. And the, the, OP, the RCMP said, are you kidding? That's a waste of time. That's a ticket. And of the effort the, the guy—he's lost the room. He had to leave. Uh, I'm surprised they didn't do it after week one, as opposed to waiting this long.
0: Mm. Alex, where'd you want to go with that? I'd love—I'd love to hear you follow up on that. No, I, I just—you
6: know—to—to—to to, to Bill's point, it was just—you um, know—they treated it as a traffic situation, and 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 their other intelligence agencies that also dropped the ball because they—they—they they, they focused in only on lone wolf issues. It is confounding to me that no one in charge at any level watching this thing come across Canada where the truckers made very clear they aren't going anywhere. I mean, it was all out there. They they gave directions of what they were going to do. And not one person in charge thought, what if we park them and they don't leave? I mean, that that to me is the basics of emergency planning. I mean, there will be reviews, commissions and so many things in the aftermath of this. And, and frankly, you know, I think we have to ask some very serious questions about security vulnerabilities in this country. I mean, because on top of all this, you've got members of the police who are working with some of these protesters. You've got members of the military who are supposed to be working for the public. And they're apparently helping, you know, some of the protesters. There is a blurred line. There's a lack of trust, I think, in the public. Um, but you know, we're talking the nation's capital, mm. the most politically connected place in the country, and this is what you get.
0: Yeah. And I hope our inquiry, to your point and Bill's point, I hope our inquiry is as significant as what they're doing in the States, because on be. January 5th of last year, they let people know they were coming. There there should have been every safeguard taken and there wasn't. So you had 50 protesters. Armed protesters with weapons going up against one cop at a time and pushing barricades down. Like uh, it so there was a lot of questions about the Capitol police, uh the people that guard the Capitol, the DC police, etc., etc. And they're looking into it. And but that's different in that, yeah, it was a lot more violent. Clearly, it was. But then those people all went home on January 7th. And what are we talking? Day 20 now? Um, of uh, of something that was just unfathomable. Besides everything else um, that's happened, let me pivot here, Doug, to uh, to Doug for uh, Bill, to Doug Ford, and uh, and talk about his. We we're going to play his sort of rant about being done with COVID. And listen, I think it's mm. it speaks to the, the what what provincial politics is right now. We all feel a little politically homeless. We're all a little mixed. We might like a little bit of this aspect, a little bit of that aspect, and um, all three of us have been critical of the Ford government at times. How did his message, do you think, land with the general public? There's being done with COVID and also saying um, there still need to be some safeguards in place. How did his sort of two minute rampage about let's take the damn masks off land with you?
3: Uh, I was not surprised, frankly, because we've noticed some exasperation on the premier's part uh, the last two or three times he's been uh, in public talking about moving the timeline up and things of this nature. Uh, But. There's a responsibility with leadership here, and, I, and, and words matter. And we've talked about that numerous times, not just Ford, but with, certainly with Trudeau and, and a number of other leaders as well. Uh, to say we're done with it, uh, first of all, it runs, flies to the face of what the medical officers is saying. They said, yeah, you know, look, it's good. Uh, Peter Udy was on a teleconference here yesterday, too, and said it's fine. Hamilton is not out of the woods yet by the way our hospitals are still at capacity and they said look at one of you know a couple of new cases like this and we're right back to square one where we're going to have problems and and start offloading people to other jurisdictions like toronto so we're not out of the woods uh we may be pissed with this whole thing and say enough is enough uh i'm glad that the restrictions are open i'm going out for dinner this weekend my wife and i hardly wait to do that love to go and see live theater in toronto and that's going to happen sooner than later Mm -hmm. i guess but we still have to have our guard up just a little bit here. Uh, yet let's not pretend that everything's over and the sun is shining and, you know, we're all going to hold hands and sing kumbaya. Uh, this, this has left a huge, huge scar uh, in this whole area. And uh, it's not going to happen. And the, the recovery is not going to happen overnight. Uh, the premier has to be careful about this because he's going to have to eat those words if all of a sudden there's a spike. And by the way, there still is in northern Ontario. And he's the, pro- he's the premier of, of that part of the province, too, I think.
0: Alex, what's your thought on it? You you followed, you know, provincial politics in Ontario for ages. I think we worry sometimes that all three leaders a, leave a little to be desired and B, they do things because polls tell them to. And it doesn't matter whether you were a fan of Mike Harris, Bob Ray, Dalton McGinty. It, it just felt like there was a little more of a, of a genuine sense of of politics. Like, I'm going to do this because I think it's the mm-hmm. right thing to do. I think everybody is trying to, Andrea Horvath, Stephen Del Duke, <laughs> Doug Ford, they're all trying to read the room yeah. here. And, and we just want, uh, you know, honesty and accountability from those three.
6: Well, yeah, look, the politicians aren't helping, and that's because the politicians have really politicked this pandemic instead of leading it as a crisis, which maybe it's just impossible to do today uh, of balancing both, but they need to. Um, And I think that's what's fueled so much of the anger and the frustration, because we have done what was asked for us. Most of this country has done everything and stepped up and sacrificed big time, only to find ourselves back in the same place every single time. I'm done with this. I've done everything I can. What more must I do? I I don't think most of us can stomach any more damage, whether it's economic, mental health, uh, learning loss, the kids, what they've been through. There's absolutely no, um, I think, uh, strength in in people to deal with this. So I think Ford's tapping into something. But the proof is in the pudding. You know, we're going into an election and, you know, the conversation, one of the main conversations other than, um, you know, the screw-ups of this pandemic has to be a conversation about medical care because, you know, we're shutting down entire economies and destroying people because we have capacity issues that have been there for a long time, and no one fixes them. The last government, the uh, McGindy government cut health care. Now we're throwing billions trying to band-aid it. There has to be a conversation about a proper fix to capacity issues, frontline workers, all these things. I don't know if anyone in, in politics has the appetite, let alone me the cojones to, to have an honest conversation about how we fix this. We can't keep throwing money at it and then shutting things down to Bill's point. When we get a, a flare up, it just, you, we can't keep doing it.
0: Bill, I got 45 seconds, but you see what happens in the states and what's happening. We're seeing Democratic governors under huge heat in California, New York from parents that say, I might I I never thought I'd vote Republican. I despise Donald Trump, but you won't leave yeah. my family alone. You won't let my kid play sports. You're making my kid wear a mask outside. And parents are seeing their kids struggling. Mm-hmm. Feelings are real. Parents aren't being selfish when they advocate for their own household. The fear there, we're in a weird political landscape because we have a right leaning government that's locked us down pretty hard the fear going into election day is would the other two lock us down harder and these are conversations yeah. that we're all having
3: well exactly exactly i thought one of the other comments that was very telling uh from the premier yesterday uh was not just that we're done with it uh but he basically tried to walk back this whole thing about the, the proof of vaccination he says you know i was never really in favor of that and uh, you know, all you people that are really upset you know that wasn't me that was my this doctor over here that did it I didn't, you know, they dragged me kicking and screaming into that. Well, you can sure tell there's an election a couple of months from now, can't you? Everybody mm-hmm. love me, please.
0: <laughs> a lot <laughs> of that. Hey, you guys, thank you so much for the time. I know, again, you're prepping for your own show, so we kept this on uh, on track. Have great shows today, Alex and Bill. Thanks so much for coming on ours. Bye,
6: Thanks guys. Cheers.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast. We appreciate it on Toronto Today. We've got a live show tomorrow between 5.30 and 9 on 6.40 Toronto for Thursday, heading into a longer weekend. We will get there. We appreciate you listening. Thanks for spreading the word about our show, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.